You're listening to the Upper Room Frisco podcast. To learn more about UR Frisco, please visit UpperRoomFrisco.com. Last week I told a story and I forgot the punchline and I walked away and I was like, oh, oh, I wish I would have remembered why I started telling that story to begin with. And so I want to tell you the punchline now. So um, (laughs) if you were here last last week, you probably remember me saying something to the effect of that God said that he is going to be bringing back the bizarre and you know mind-boggling type miracles and 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 moments with him and then i gave an example of some of the, like the bizarre things that i've seen god do or i've heard of god doing with close friends of mine and so uh, a guy that i got to i had the honor of spending time with on occasion when i was at morningstar school of ministry was this guy named bob jones and he was highly prophetic Um, He's spoken into many church leaders' lives who have started movements because of the prophetic uh, that Bob spoke to them. Um, And so he has a a long list of crazy miracles and and cool things. And so anyway, the story goes, has this, and it was public, so it's confirmed um, whether or not you want to go into like a, I'm just going to tell you the story. So this guy goes to um, a Morningstar conference where Bob happened to be, and he went there asking God three questions, and he really needed the Lord to speak to him. And so, in one of the sessions, he goes off into, he just goes out on a hike. He walks off into the woods just to be alone with uh, the Lord uh, on a break between sessions. And he, he's asking God these three things, like, I really need breakthrough in these three things. And and this eagle lands close to him, and it was a marked moment, you know. It was a cool moment. This eagle's there, and, and he, so he continues to pray just in the, the cool moment that, you know, just happened. Um, and uh, so he goes back to the, the conference, and Bob Jones stands up, takes the mic, and starts to prophesy, calls him out, and says, you've been asking God these three questions. It's this, and this is what he says. It's this, and this is what he says. And the third question is this, and this is what he says. And every word is dead on accurate. The guy's undone. And he, but he asks, how did you know these things? And Bob says, I was the eagle. <laughs> I love saying stuff like that and then just feeling the room. Like... Okay, so I had Corey and Dana Russell over, um, you know, like 10 days ago or something for dinner. And Corey brought up that story. And he said, you ever heard this story? I was like, yes, I have heard that story. So he, he goes through the story, tells, the, tells it again um, for everyone at the table to hear it. And I was like, that is amazing. How, I mean, I was like, well, I'm, I'm ready for those seasons where God is doing those things against signs that make you wonder. Not just signs and wonders, but signs that are so crazy that they make you wonder. Like, it's been a while since I've seen God show up and I have no idea what's going on. Like, what in the world are you doing, God, and why are you doing it? You know what I mean? Like, I'm re- who's ready for that? Can you just, sign- just say, I sign up for that, Lord? Um, so anyway, he tells the story, and it's a cool moment. And then we start ping-ponging back and forth, like cool God stories, and we're just feeling the Holy Spirit. You know, when you talk about the Holy Spirit, the angels gather because you know things about him that they don't. 
You have such a place of privilege with having the great I am, Yahweh himself, living inside of you. You are privy to affection and information that the angels long to look into. And so we started to feel the shuby at dinner. And it's fun. It's fun to talk about the Holy Spirit. Because um, you, you summon what you serenade. That's why, like, you, you guys have probably been around a campfire and talked about, you know, a ghost story and who shows up. Well, you know, the boogeyman, because you were just talking about him. You can feel the presence of fear rise when you give attention and glory to it. Cool thing about the Lord is he is really good at showing up when we talk about him. We give him the attention. Holy Spirit, we give you the attention. And so dinner ends after, you know, we're swapping these cool stories. And not an hour goes by, my phone dings, and it's a buddy of mine from Denver. This is the punchline that I forgot. And the text message reads, hey man, have you ever heard that story about Bob Jones giving the three words where he shows up as an eagle in the woods? I was like, oh yeah. I certainly have. You wouldn't believe it. I was just talking about it tonight. <laughs> and he's like, that's crazy. And we start texting back and forth. And he said, I had, uh, I had this dream where like Bob Jones came to me. And then, and then Sean Bowles calls me and tells me that, like, that you know, all this stuff is going to be increasing. That you know, some of the anointing of Bob Jones is going to rest on you. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And I just started to feel that... Um, paradigm, that belief system, that anticipation, that level of faith where you believe for the weird again, (laughs) where we're led by dreams in the night, where we're led by visions, where we hear his voice, where we see manifestations, where we're encountering angels. Holy Spirit, we want all of that. I feel like a really important phrase in the coming days is, I don't know, but God is good. You want to practice it with me? Say it, one, two, three. I don't know, but God is good. We have to be so grounded in the goodness of God, so convinced of his goodness that no matter what the shaking, that even no, no matter what we, you know, what we, we may have like stumbled upon playing like Bible roulette, like where we like point to some passage in the Old Testament, we can still say, I don't know, but God is good. One thing that's never, ever ever going to change is the goodness, kindness, and mercy of Jesus. See, uh, what Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Have you guys ever had one of those reformational moments in your life or a reformational season where God is showing you things or teaching you things and you have to like go buy a new Bible because you're like, I highlighted all the wrong verses. I need a new one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, 
or like one of those, <laughs> those seasons when God is showing you so much of his goodness, character, and kindness, and mercy, like you're really getting like fresh glimpses of his goodness that you can't even sing the old songs that you used to sing because for some reason the words aren't quite right. They're not quite good enough. Like some of the, the, the old hymns, especially like, prone to wander, Lord, I, am I? Am I prone to wander or am I prone to love? Whoo! Am I prone to be like crazy about the Lord? Am I prone to be stuck in a place of adoration and enjoyment forever? Or am I prone to wander? <laughs> or no. You are not prone to wander. You've been bought with a price. You are firmly planted within the enjoyment and fellowship of the Trinity. At any moment, you can fix your eyes on him and feel the joy of heaven. You are not prone to wander. You are prone to love. So I wanted to share some of my thoughts tonight on the gospel, some of the things that I believe and think about Jesus that have brought a lot of freedom and joy into my life, a lot of things that have come through transformational seasons or reformational seasons. Reformation just means that God has reformed his image of himself in your mind. He has reformed how you see him. So Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That means that the disciples got what Moses cried out for. When Moses said, Lord, let me see your glory, the disciples got to reap that prayer. Because both John the Beloved and Paul the Apostle said, no one has seen God until Jesus came along. Now, John and Paul both knew scriptures. They knew all the stories, right? And you're like, wait a minute, John, Paul, like, you, you, you remember, like, those moments when Yahweh, like, showed up, or there's Christophany, so, like, those, you know, Moses on the mountain, and then Abram, and, you know, they're, what do you mean no one is, has, has seen God? And, but John and Paul both realized that compared to the incarnation of Jesus himself, Yahweh showing up in the flesh, no one has seen what the Father is really like. Jesus is the very radiance of God, or the apagasma. <laughs> As it says in Hebrews 1.3. And Paul actually said, I've resolved to know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. This is a really smart dude. And he's just decided to camp out in one place. And you're like, but what? And then, but when you really ask the question why, a whole world of revelation opens up that you'll never find your way out of for all of eternity. You're like, but why, Paul? Whoa. Like, <laughs> just Jesus and him crucified. There is endless levels of glory, majesty, and joy in just that one topic. The scandal of God submitting to our torture device. 
called the cross is going to be forever mind-boggling. The cross wasn't created by the Father. It was birthed out of the darkest corners of our demonically inspired thoughts. The fact that Yahweh would lay himself on such a vile device is insanely offensive. We wear something around our necks that is worse than the electric chair. It's worse than the guillotine. It's worse than a gas chamber. That's, that's what you wear around your neck. He turned the symbol of our deepest darkness into the symbol of the brightest light. Just like the stones that fell out of the hands of the accusers before the, the woman caught in adultery, those things that were supposed to be intended to be the implements of her death turned into an altar of the mercy of God. Now the cross, which was supposed to be the worst torture device that man had ever made up, that vile, disgusting thing, from the dark corners of our fallen state, our futility of thinking, our minds darkened by sin, that foul device of torture is now a symbol of mercy and grace and brings joy upon joy upon joy to everyone who sees it and understands it. Jesus on the cross is proof that God would rather die than kill those who are acting as his enemies. And I say those acting as his enemies because they thought they were his enemies. This is Colossians 1.21. You were once alienated from God and were enemies in your minds, as shown by your evil behavior. But now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body. In other words, you thought you were God's enemies, and that was proven by how you behaved towards him. And we can think that we're God's enemies and we can even act like it, but humans can't ever be God's enemies because this struggle has never been against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6.12. Jesus on the cross is the way to take all of humanity into the grave to die with him, to be raised with him, and to ascend with him. As Adam brought death to all, Christ brought life to all. See, we've become very accustomed and comfortable with the idea that one man's sin led to everyone being born under that curse. But we're about to become way more accustomed and comfortable to the idea that one man's obedience has reconciled us to righteousness. Jesus on the cross is God's mind made up about humanity. Jesus on the cross, he's shouting out, they don't know what they're doing. Jesus, a little bit earlier than that, he, in Luke 9, the disciples are manifesting all sorts of horrible stuff. And Jesus looks at him, and instead of rebuking him, he says, you guys don't know what spirit you're of. In other words, like Eve You've been deceived. You've been duped 
by the greatest swindler that ever was, you've been manipulated. You've believed the father of lies. See, we would actually have to believe a lie about the father to act as his enemy. In other words, we were conned by the greatest con man. I've said this before recently, but you guys know why Jesus never sinned, right? Because he was 100% human. The way a human was made to act. He was 100% human who didn't believe one lie about the Father. I have five kids. <laughs> yes, amen, brother. Be fruitful, multiply. We overshot the runway. Two times two is four. We've got five. Take that. <laughs> I love my kids with a ferocious love. Um, my daughter is uh, Evelyn. It's my firstborn daughter. She came along. My I didn't know my heart could love the way that it loved when I when I met my daughter. And uh, she had me wrapped around her finger. I'd do anything for her. And, and I had her heart because she loved me. She, I mean, she, I called her snuggle bug. She, I still do. She's, she's eight now, but she just snuggles and snuggles and snuggles. She loves her daddy. Thank God for my baby. And imagine it, she completely trusts me 100%. Imagine if a manipulator entered our life, someone who, had, who we... Uh, gave access to our home, that we let around our children. And unbeknownst to me, this manipulator began to get Evelyn to question my heart towards her. In such a way that she doubted my goodness from that day forward. That that manipulator convinced Evelyn to doubt my goodness in such a way that for the rest of my life, I would be proving my love to her. Now imagine I have a moment to pour out my wrath on either Evelyn or the manipulator. Who's going to get it? Jesus on the cross shows the length that he would go to reconcile us back into friendship with him. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us. It doesn't say that God was in Christ reconciling himself to us. It's reconciling us to him. He wasn't the one that needed reconciling. The cross was evidence and proof that his heart towards us never did change. cross didn't change God, it changed us. So in that moment, what didn't count against us? According to that verse, sin was not counted against us. The real problem was that we sold ourselves into slavery and could no longer see the Father as he really is. So Jesus broke our contract with death and in that showed us how the Father really is. He simultaneously freed us from our contracts with death, and in that showed us how kind the Father is. Jesus 
on the cross is a mirror showing the horrors of our violence and our jealousy and our accusation, and it shows the destruction that can be done in that state of blindedness. You know, Jesus walked around saying things like, good job, Vince, calling you out. It's amazing. (laughs) Jesus walked around saying, if someone wants to strike you on the cheek, give him the other one also. And he's not saying it like in a show of resolve, like I'm stronger than your violence towards me. No, Jesus is saying, let them have a really good shot at you so they don't break their knuckles on your jaw. Jesus was thinking, if I allow man to pour out all of his violence, rage, wrath, accusation, and blindness on me, then I can take it in the grave and leave it there. He was tempted in every way, and then he was tortured in every way. I have a question for you guys. If God, bound by his justice, could only forgive us by killing his son, then why wasn't his son just killed, and why was he ruthlessly tortured beyond recognition? If we could get forgiven just by someone dying in our place, wouldn't God just kill him so that the, everything would be canceled and we'd all be good? Then why was Jesus tortured Stripped naked, nailed to a cross, enduring the worst kind of pain imaginable, abandoned by his friends. Maybe it's because of sinners in the hands of an angry God. We saw God in the hands of angry sinners. And every biblical writer from that moment forward blamed the forces of darkness and demonized, inspired men. For his death. If the rulers of this age knew what they were doing, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. Jesus laid down his life so that we could pour out all of our wrath and accusation on God so that in that moment he could show us mercy when we were at our worst. He met us at our lowest when we were pouring out our worst on him and said, Father, Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, that is when the swindler got swindled. That's when he got down into the grave, and that's when Satan realized how bad his mistake was. And 1 Corinthians 2.8 rang true. If the rulers of this age knew what they were doing, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory because they only let the cat out of the bag and that cat was the Lion of Judah and there was no way to put him back in. You guys ever seen the Chronicles of Narnia? Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? It's a great movie, right? Poor Edmund is making all sorts of horrible errors early on, right? And he gets into cahoots with the white witch. And he's manipulated by her. 
she deceives him. And in that deceit and in that manipulation, he does the worst thing possible and sells out his family. And then they rescue Edmund and bring him back to Aslan's camp. And Aslan represents Jesus, right? What happens in that moment? The white witch comes riding into camp and saying, you know as well as I do that the law says that every traitor belongs to me. His life is mine. And she's demanding Edmund back. And Aslan says, don't quote the deep magic to me, which I was there when it was written. And he calls the witch into his tent and they talk. And they come out and Aslan says, the witch has relinquished her claim on Edmund. And everyone cheers. And the witch says, basically, you're going to hold up the end of our bargain. And he roars at her to shut her up, right? And you know what happens that night. Aslan leaves camp under the cover of darkness and goes and submits himself into the hands of the witch to be shaved, to be stripped naked, to be humiliated, mocked, and killed. What the witch didn't know, right? Is that when an innocent one chooses to lay down his life for the traitor, the traitor's set free. And what the witch didn't know is that when love gets into the grave, that's where love wanted to get because love is stronger than death. Many waters cannot quench love. And when love got in the grave, it exploded the realm of the dead like a pipe bomb. In most of Western Christianity, people think that it was God being like the white witch demanding blood to tip even the scales of justice. When in actuality, it was God freeing us from the powers of darkness, baiting Satan to put him down into the death, into the realm of the dead, so that he could come back with the keys and free us all. See, the cross was the path to get love down into, the de into death. The cross is not a bartering tool with the Father, there's not some good cop, bad cop situation going on between Jesus and the Father. We don't stand before the Father and say, I know I'm trash, but Jesus paid my entrance fee. Nope. We stand unashamed with confidence like sun, and we run to the throne of grace and shout, Jesus showed me that I am your beloved and canceled my debt with death and freed me from my bondage. I love you, Dad. Jesus not stoning the woman caught in adultery shows that he's love. Jesus saving on the Sabbath shows that he is love. Jesus on the cross is the loudest I love you that anyone has ever shouted. It is the most shameless public display of affection that any lover has ever displayed. It is the surest victory that any warrior has ever won. Can you stand with me and pray?
Father, tear up every caricature that we've drawn of your image. Every contorted thing that we believe about you and your goodness. Just tear it up. And tear down every statue that we've constructed in our mind that portrays you as vindictive, retributive, or capricious. Whoo, you are not moody. (laughs) You are steady. Let the reality that God is love revolutionize our life and bring a reformation to every church. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you guys. Enjoy fellowshipping deeply with one another. Enjoy the fact that you have been purchased by Jesus and you are now dwelling in the kingdom of love.